They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome. And I'm Caitlin. And welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, we'll read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This month, we read Seven Days in June by Tia Williams, a steamy second-chance romance about the scars of young love and the way two people can orbit each other like two stars. This book does come with a trigger warning for drug abuse, self-harm, and gun violence. Consider this when deciding when and how you'll listen. Seven Days in June was written by Tia Williams and published in 2021. In addition to being an author with several titles under her belt, including The Perfect Fine, The Accidental Diva, and The It Chick duology, Williams is also a big name in the fashion industry. She's edited for Elle, Teen People, and Glamour magazines, and she's currently the editorial director of the Estee Lauder Companies. Seven Days in June was a New York Times bestseller and a Reese Witherspoon book club pick, and is currently in development for a TV adaptation. Seven Days in June follows a dual timeline, telling the story of main characters Eva and Shane, when they first met in high school and reunited 15 years later. We begin in 2021 with author Eva Mercy. Eva is the writer of the adult paranormal romance series Cursed, which follows the story of a witch and a vampire who are in love but doomed to wake up on opposite sides of the world every time they have sex. The books are often dismissed by critics as smut, but she has a dedicated following and is even in the process of developing a movie based on her books. In addition to being a working woman with a great career, Eva is also raising her 12-year-old daughter Audrey and living with chronic migraines, a condition that she keeps private and manages with prescription pain injections and medical marijuana. Basically, Eva's life is normal, happy, and with no more stress than she can handle. Until he shows up. Our other point of view character, Shane Hall, a reclusive writer who writes highbrow literary stuff with manic pixie dream girls and romanticized mental illness and lots of pretty flowery language that wins him lots of awards and has him ranked as one of the great black contemporaries of the generation. He is also a recovering alcoholic, an English teacher who dedicates his time to mentoring at-risk youth, and the inspiration behind Eva's male protagonist, Sebastian. When Shane shows up in New York at the same author's panel as Eva, she is immediately thrown off her game, as she is forced to remember their seven-day fling 15 Junes ago. In the early 2000s, Eva is 17 and living in Washington, D.C. with her mother, Lizette. Lizette is a sex worker, and Eva, who at the time still goes by her given name, Geneviève Mercier, is a teen struggling with frequent moves, an absent mother, abusive men in her life, and ever-increasing, disabling pain. She medicates her chronic headaches with whatever drugs she can get her hands on, whether they are prescription or off the streets. She also self-harms regularly. On her first day at a new school, Geneviève makes a decision that she will make a friend, and ends up latching on to a boy with a broken arm and a worn copy of James Baldwin, Shane. He initially warns her to stay away from him, but the pair bond quickly in spite of Shane's protests. And by the end of the day, they are hiding out at his friend's house, getting high. They spend nearly a week in that house, becoming close in the way only teenagers can, 
losing themselves in one another, forgetting the rest of the world. They talk about their trauma, how Shane has grown up in group homes interspersed by stints in juvie, how Jean Viev's family has a long line of troubled women with mental and physical ailments and bad relationships. They make promises to never leave one another, to protect each other. They carve their initials into each other's skin. Then, on the seventh night, Genevieve overdoses. When she wakes up, she is surrounded by paramedics and her mother, but Shane is nowhere to be seen. Her mother says he's long gone, that Genevieve won't be able to keep a man any more than her foremothers could. Mercier women are cursed. In the present day, Eva and Shane exchange words. Eva calling out that Shane's books are all based on her life and her stories that she told him. She tells him to stop writing about her, to which he responds that he will stop writing about Eight, the character based on Eva, when she stops writing about him in the form of Sebastian. Eva is tempted to dismiss Shane entirely, believing that as the wronged party here, she has every right to write whatever she wants. But the universe has other plans. Eva's daughter Audrey gets in trouble at school, threatening her position at the elite private institution and causing an English teacher to leave the profession in the process. The principal tells Eva she will allow Audrey to stay at the school if Eva can find a suitable replacement teacher. So now she has to talk to Shane, because you may remember, he's an English teacher. Shane agrees right away to take the job, but this little bit of contact is enough to reignite the spark between him and Eva. By the end of the day, the two are having sex in what can only be described as a private nap house. Just like before, they fall into each other, though now with fewer drugs and more adult conversations. Eva learns more about what really pulled Shane away that night 15 years ago. They're able to forgive one another, find a new kind of love. Eva even introduces Shane to Audrey, who takes to her mom's new boyfriend shockingly well. Then Shane receives terrible news. One of his students has been shot. He races to the kid's bedside, staying with him while he dies. An experience that really fucks Shane up. After this, he and Eva agree that he's just not in the right place for a serious relationship. He needs time to get right with himself first. Eva does too. She wants to learn more about her heritage, who she is outside of the cursed novels. She spends the summer in Louisiana at her ancestral home, learning all about the history of the Mercier women. Shane spends the summer rethinking his priorities, coping with his grief, and learning to set healthy boundaries with his students. At the end of the summer, the pair reunite, both changed for the better and ready to try again. Now that we've covered the bones of this story, let us have a quick ad break. Welcome back. We'll get our critique started with our initial thoughts. So we forgot to have negative critiques on this book. Forgot? <laughs> you make it sound like we go out of our way to, to be contrarian. <laughs> we did not forget this book was just fantastic. Which is so great for romance novels because as much as I enjoy them when I'm in the mood... They tend to not get very high ratings for me. Yeah, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, we haven't reviewed a lot of romance novels, but you'll notice that they don't get the highest ratings from us. We're a bit harsh on them. <laughs> and, you know, spoiler alert, we really liked this one. <laughs> now, this was just fantastic. It was a great pick for June. Sorry we're releasing it in July. 
stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we've been busy, okay? Mm -hmm. We've been busy. And we really did want to read a Black written romance novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's the first note that I wrote about this book, is that this book is unapologetically just Black joy. And I really, really love that, you know? Obviously, we are two white people reviewing this book, so we can't speak from a place of, like, personal experience, mm -hmm. but it is nice anytime you can read a book that is written about Black people, by Black people, and it's just about, like, them living their lives and being in love and so like that, and it's not... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, and I'm scared. <laughs> An exploitation story? Yes. Yeah. And I think that's why it's important to read from diverse authors, as well as just reading diverse stories featuring diverse characters. Because you do get a new perspective when you read from someone not from your own group. Yeah. And I think that's what we set out to do by choosing Seven Days in June, and it really paid off. And it's not just that it focuses on Black joy, although that is wonderful to see, but it does also focus on trauma, pain, community issues. Mm -hmm. And it handles those topics very well. Yeah. And that is literally our second note, which is that this book does tackle a lot of huge topics. It tackles the school-to-prison pipeline, it tackles generational trauma, it tackles mental illness, addiction, disability, and it does all of them really, really well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you have a book that is trying to pack a lot of heavy topics into one novel, it can get to be too much, or it can feel like they're not dedicating enough time to any one issue or something like that. Yeah, especially if it's a romance novel and the focus isn't going to be on these issues, it's going to be on the relationship between the two leads. But in this book, it felt like every single one of these things was basically the way it is in real life. They were, they were realities of what the characters are living with that impact their lives, but also are not the end-all be-all of who they are as people. Mm -hmm. And I really enjoyed that. Me too. And while we can't comment on the accuracy or representation of the Black side of the story, I loved the way that this story handled mental illness and disability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I also enjoyed the way that this book handled the school-to-prison pipeline because I spent the early parts of my education working in schools similar to the ones that Shane dedicates his time to. And I felt they were really accurately represented. A lot of fiction that depicts schools like this, I think about stories like Freedom Writers, Stand and Deliver, things like that, they kind of whitewash these stories to make them more palatable to readers or viewers. Mm -hmm. Even the ones like Freedom Writers and Stand and Deliver that are based on true stories. Um, and I didn't feel like this book did that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that, and I really enjoyed reading that, even if it's, like, a difficult thing to read. Yeah. I also appreciate that even a story about the dangers of addiction, Eva uses medical marijuana, and it works for her, and there's no judgment there. Mm -hmm. I thought that was just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the same goes with her pain injections. It's like, mm -hmm. she, even, she even has a moment where she, through a lot of this book, she hides her disability. She hides her, her migraines except from people who are very close to her. And then she has a moment where she decides, why am I hiding this? Like, this is a part of my life. This is a part of who I am. And she just says to this, like, table of people who barely know her, you know, I'm going to go into the bathroom and I'm going to shoot an injection into my leg. And then I'm also probably going to take some weed. 
Bye. <laughs> and I liked that. I was like, yeah, yes you are, girl. Go do that. <laughs> yeah, people should ever feel ashamed of needing medication. Yeah. And, and it's very clear how much Eva suffers due to her chronic pain condition. Mm-hmm. And yet it never... What's the word? It never feels exploitative. Yeah, and it never feels like it defines her. Yes. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that um, during the research for this book, I learned that the author herself, Tia Williams, suffers from chronic migraines. Ah. So she's definitely writing from a place of experience with this. And I think she described what she lives with very vividly and very well. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to what we're saying about, you know, authors representing themselves in their novels, representing their disabilities. And, like, it's one thing to write about that if you haven't experienced it. And you can write about disability having not experienced it yourself and still present it very well. But there's something special about reading it from the author's personal experience that just gives you a much more in-depth perspective. Yeah. Another thing that I felt was really well written in this book was the teen and tween characters. <laughs> um, both Shane and Eva as kids, and then also the character of Audrey. Mm -hmm. which is Eva's daughter. Audrey is possibly one of the best written 12-year-olds I have read in a novel in years. <laughs> Maybe ever. Because when you're an adult writing a 12-year-old, you can fall into these very cringy effects of, like, one, you can make them seem too young, or two, you can make them seem like an adult with, like, some childish tendencies because you're an adult and it can go to either unsettling or annoying mm -hmm. audrey is annoying <laughs> she's a pain in the ass but in a way that is very realistic for a 12 year old girl mm -hmm. in audrey i saw so many of the real students i've had of the real 12 year olds i've known she felt very real to me mm-hmm and it was kind of one of those things where I feel like maybe if you're not around kids, maybe you might read her and be like, Psh, what is up with this child? Like, this is not how kids act. But yes, it is. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, yes, it is. This is how a 12-year-old child behaves. <laughs> Particularly a 12-year-old child with parents who love them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, she definitely felt more real than some of the other teens we've read throughout this podcast. Yeah. No, I just, I really loved her. She's, she's this determined, smart, bright girl, but also with this, like, very intense passion. Yeah, this very intense passion, and also that 12-year-old self-centeredness of, like, she has compassion for other people, but at the same time, it really all comes back to being all about her, but not in, like, a psychopathic kind of way, <laughs> just in a 12-year-old kind of way. You know, an underdeveloped brain kind of way. Exactly. That way of, like, she is learning her place in the world. She is learning how to interact with other people. She is learning how the world around her works. She has an overinflated sense of self. Her world is small, but it's growing bigger and bigger by the day. She is developing relationships with people. She is starting to observe things that she has not observed previously when it comes to people like her parents and her teachers. Uh, she is starting to observe injustices in the world that she did not observe before, and it is all coming at her very, very fast, and she is just soaking it all in and then putting it all back out there, and it's making her a pain in the ass, 
but she's also so enchanting and phenomenal at the same time. And like she's the kind of she's the kind of child that I would want to have in my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's probably the best you could hope for for a twelve year old girl. Yes. And Eva's love for her shows that. You see Eva's frustrations with the fact that, like, she knows that there's nothing she can do about the fact that Audrey is going through puberty (laughs) and being 12. But at the same time, she deals with the frustrations that I think every mother probably experiences when their daughter is going through that phase. Mm -hmm. And she wants to do right by her daughter. She doesn't want to do the wrong thing. She wants to make sure that her daughter is growing into a good woman but she also wants to give her space she doesn't want to be overbearing but she wants to make sure that she's you know keeping her safe and she's struggling with that that is one of the things that she's struggling with is finding that boundary of how to be a good mother especially when she didn't have the best example herself growing up Mm -hmm. yeah you can really feel that they're both doing the best that they can in their situation and that they love each other and it was, it was a really beautiful parent-child dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing that was written really well with this was Shane and Eva as a pair. Mm-hmm. Their chemistry is there from the moment they are on the page together. Mm-hmm. Their chemistry is fire. There is nothing more disappointing than a romance <laughs> novel with two leads that have no chemistry. Mm-hmm. But that was not an issue here. Yeah, literally the moment they are on the page together, like... If you're in Eva's point of view, you're reading Shane and you're like, he can do anything he wants to me right now. And if you're in Shane's point of view and you're watching Eva, you're like, she's a goddess that walks on this earth and I am blessed to be in her presence. You feel how they feel about each other and you get into it. Mm-hmm. Like, you experience it with them. And uh, it's not just a physical connection between them. There's definitely a mental connection that is driving the relationship. Yes, and you see how their past and their present are woven together Mm -hmm. so beautifully. You see these hints of things in the present, because I told the story like present, then past, then present again, but it's more interspersed than that. It goes kind of back and forth. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of moments where you see like a moment between them in the present day And you're like, oh, there's something there. There's something underlying there. I feel that there. And then like three chapters later in the past, something will happen. You'll be like, oh, that's what that was about. The author just does a really wonderful job of weaving together this web of influence that shows you how the experience these two had together as teenagers, even though it was short, deeply affected both of them for the rest of their lives. Not just when they're together, but in their lives just for the past 15 years as adults in general, and their work as well. Mm-hmm. I thought the way that the past and the, the present day timelines were woven together worked so well for these characters in this story. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when you do a split timeline, especially with dual perspective, like you end up hitting like one perspective is not, not as interesting as the others. Or when timeline is less interesting, but that was not the case. They were so beautifully woven together mm-hmm. that it just worked perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, the romance is really just emotionally mature. I know. I cannot tell you how rare it is to find a romance novel where the leads are mature. Yeah. They actually felt like adults instead of like 18-year-olds in a 30-year-old's body. Yeah, because there's like... 
there's this moment where you see that they could go back down the kind of toxic, mutually destructive path that they were on when they were teenagers. Mm-hmm. And then they don't. Yes. And they continue to not. Every time they have the chance to go back to that, they don't. They do things like there's a misunderstanding that can be easily solved with mutual communication, and then they communicate. Mm-hmm. And they solve it. I know, there's no forced third act conflict over a small miscommunication here. Yeah, like, there's a moment where you think that it's gonna happen right after Shane's student gets shot and he has to leave. He he stands Eva and Audrey up for a date when this happens. And it's not, like, on purpose, it's just they had this scheduled brunch date, then he gets the call, and he dashes off and he doesn't tell anybody that he's leaving because he's so focused on getting to this kid. And it's not until after it's all over and the kid is gone and everything that he realizes oh crap i had a date Mm -hmm. so then he gets in touch with eva and he's like hey i'm sorry i missed our date one of my students got shot and up until now she'd been mad because he ghosted her but then as soon as she hears one of my students got shot she's like oh well that's a perfectly reasonable explanation And I'm very sorry, and let me stop being mad entirely and focus on helping you with your grief. Mm -hmm. And it was so, like, realistic. Because (laughs) you would assume that's how things would actually happen in real life if something like that happened. But if this was a movie five years ago or something, they never would have had this conversation. He would have been like, I'm sorry. And she would have been like, what excuse do you have? And he would have been like, I have no excuse. Even though he did have a perfectly good excuse. And then they would have not talked for a month or something. But they didn't do that. They talked. And then they were like, you know, you just went through a really big tragedy. Also, like, I'm dealing with things with my own personal life. Maybe we should not date right now. Yeah, and about that, it's so unusual for this kind of novel for them to not immediately get together at the end. Mm -hmm. The fact that they spent a summer apart, worked on themselves, and then decided that they still wanted to be together. That's so adult. (laughs) Yeah, and it's cute, because, like, they spend the summer apart, but, like, they keep texting, they chat with each other. They can't stop thinking about each other, and then it just gets to this point of them coming to the conclusion that, you know what, life would be better if we were together. Mm-hmm. That's so healthy. Exactly. Like, they they take some time. They're like, hey, you know, we kind of threw ourselves into this really fast. Let's stop. Let's take a minute. And then they do. And then they decide, yes, this is, in fact, what we both want. And then they do that. Yeah, especially with a book called Seven Days in June, which is, like, simultaneously about two separate sets of seven-day stints. Mm -hmm. Like, you'd expect it to be kind of Mm insta-lovey. Like, the kind of relationship that only evolves over the course of seven days. But it's really phrased more as, like, a lifelong path to being together. (laughs) Which took reflection and time away from each other and time to work on yourselves in order to be the best version of yourself that you can be before giving yourself to someone else. And that was just so great to experience. Yeah. This would normally be the part where we talk about negatives, but like I said, we don't have any. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So you can you can guess this is a 5 out of 5 for both of us. Yes. It is. This this is a 5 out of 5 for both of us. Normally this is the segment where we'd go into our final thoughts, but we kind of just gave them. Yeah, it's not like we're balancing out positives and negatives here. Like, here's my final thoughts. This was a very mature book. 
that was both a successful steamy romance while also touching on more mature topics that felt very adult and it all just worked together perfectly. This is the best romance I've read this year. Five out of five stars. Ditto. As always, our ratings are subjective. Give us your notes on Twitter at Couple of Notes, on Instagram or our new Threads account at Couple of Notes Podcast with underscores between each word, or on TikTok at Couple of Notes Podcast, no underscores. Support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash couple of notes. And remember to give us a five star rating on whichever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet back here after, after the, the next, next chapter. chapter.